Welcome to the Patriotic Pulpit. There's a line in the movie called The Patriot that I want to use just to kick us off today thinking about foreign policy. And in The Patriot, Mel Gibson goes to the attic and he pulls out his tomahawk and he tells, he tells the audience, he said, I have always thought that my sins were going to we're going to catch up with me. I'm basically paraphrasing it, that my, my sins were going to visit me later. And he sees what was happening to his family and what was happening in the country as, as really the result of God's providence punishing him for his misbehavior, what he thought was his misbehavior earlier. And I think that's exactly what our foreign policy has been all about. Our foreign policy, I'm going to suggest, has been detrimental, not only detrimental to the United States, but also in many ways treasonous. And I want to think about, first of all, the debate that took place this week with uh, the Republican candidates. And one of the things that's kind of interesting to me that Nikki Haley continues to get all over Vivek Ramaswamy about you don't have any foreign policy experience. Well, you know, that's a good thing because much of our foreign policy, if not almost all of it, has been run by the State Department has been detrimental and throughout history has been actually treasonous to the interest of the United States. And what we are seeing now is the result of that treasonous policy maker, the policy makers in Washington, D.C. and international boards. Now, before I get into that, I might make mention of this, you know, just defending Ramaswamy, whom I really prefer on the Republican candidate besides Donald Trump is the fact that Nikki Haley, in this last debate, she came out and she was all over uh, Ramaswamy or defending her daughter. And, but Ramaswamy simply pointed out that, you know, your daughter's on TikTok and she's a grown woman. She's on TikTok. So before you talk about banning TikTok, maybe you better clean up your own house. Perfectly legitimate statement, perfectly legitimate argument, nothing personally attacking Nikki Haley, nothing personally attacking her daughter, not at all. But you know what? Nikki Haley just can't handle it. She jumped all over him and she says, you leave my daughter out of this. And you know, the women of the world, they kind of, oh, I like Nikki Haley. Why? That's a legitimate argument, a legitimate statement that Ramaswamy meant and that he made. And so the idea that He's bringing her daughter into it. It's not a personal attack. Was that a personal attack against her daughter? No. Was it a personal attack against Nikki Haley? No. It was simply pointing out legitimately so that she is inconsistent when it comes to the policies that she's seeking to implement or she's suggesting for the United States pertaining to TikTok. Now, I'm not weighing in on what we ought to do regarding TikTok, but I'm simply pointing out Let's, before we lose our minds on that, let's notice that Ramaswamy is perfectly legitimate. But one of the things that Nikki Haley has said to Ramaswamy continually, as she's some authority, that is, you don't know anything about foreign policy. Well, you know what? If we're going to follow the foreign policy of the United States, we might say that that was a good thing, and that is a good thing for Ramaswamy. I want you to think for just a moment, just an outline sketch of what has happened regarding the foreign policy of the United States, just for example, China. We, we helped give China away to Mao Tse-sung. That was through our mainstream media. You can read about it from many different individuals or uh, people who have, matter of fact, one of them recently passed away is M. Stanton Evans in his book, 
blacklisted by history where he's talking about Senator Joe McCarthy, but he points out that we actually, our foreign policy establishment, helped give away China to Mao Tse-Sung, and we helped undercut Chiang Kai-shek, the freedom fighter. That's something that is very plain on the pages of history. You can read about it from him. You can read about it from others as well. So not only China, but how about, how about Taiwan? The freedom fighters seeking for freedom ran with under Chiang Kai-shek, ran to Taiwan, set up the establishment there. But who has America favored through the years? I'll tell you who America has favored. America has favored communist China, red China, helping to kick out Taiwan out of the United Nations in 1971 in order to give the seat to communist China. You can read about that in different locations as well. Matter of fact, there's a, a, a news article in the Taipei Times in 2001 pointing out that this was the result of, that is, to, to cut the throat of free China to give away the seat in 1971. So we're not talking about just what Joe Biden is doing, receiving money from Red China. That's, that's obviously on the table now. That's obviously what's taking place. So did President Clinton. He received huge donations in his coffers from communist China. But we helped push out Taiwan in 1971. And then the Taipei Times, it makes a statement. It says it was the result of a collective denial of the Republic of China, that's Taiwan's statehood. Well, who was behind that? That was our foreign policy establishment led by men such as Richard Nixon, who was a Republican, Henry Kissinger, who was a world player, helped to get rid of Taiwan and favor, in all regards, communist nations. These things didn't happen by accident. This is exactly what's been taking place. According to the Taipei Times in 2001, in July 1971, United Nations National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger flew secretly to Beijing to normalize the Washington-Beijing relations. The tide of international politics was gradually turning against Taipei. That's their statement, and it was turning because of America's treasonous leadership favoring communist China over free China. That's only one part of the story. The same thing can be repeated over and over again. How is it that communism has a foothold in Cuba? American foreign policy establishment aided by the media that tells us that no, uh, Fidel Castro was an agrar agrarian reformer. That is a farmer re reformer. Who led that charge? That was the New York Times. That was our foreign policy establishment with the mainstream media in the 1950s cutting the throat of the free Cubans who had to come here to America. No wonder the Cubans living in Florida are favorable to the solid Republicans who are on the right wing of the party because they know what uh, the middle of the rotors are doing, and that is betraying our friends. The same thing can be said regarding the Berlin Wall in, in uh, Berlin, giving away Germany. It was our foreign policy advisors after America had captured, had even, even surrounded Berlin after, at the end of World War II that we allowed the Soviet Union to come in and take half of Berlin, whose, whose fault was that? Whose fault was it that they were behind the Iron Curtain? That was, of course, American foreign policy establishment, which has been led by these treasonous 
one-worlders, pro-communist people such as the Henry Kissingers of the world. As a matter of fact, Henry Kissinger was making money through international banks via Iran after we gave away Iran to the mullahs. And that's the story we want to talk about today. Not Kissinger, but how did America simply give away Iran? If you're listening to the mainstream media or listening to any any portion of the media right now, all you hear is Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror. I believe that. That's true. Iran, coupled with the Soviet Union, coupled with Red China, coupled with North Korea. There's another story. How is it that our foreign policy establishment and the establishment man, Harry Truman, did not want MacArthur to take even North Korea? And MacArthur told him, he said, no, you can't fight communism this way by simply allowing them to have some territory. You have to go in all the way and free all of the people if you're going to do anything at all. What's happened? We are still technically at war with North Korea right now. Technically at war. We have been at war all of my life. So, yeah, Nikki Haley, I don't want to listen to the statements, well, Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't know anything about foreign policy. Apparently, the neocons such as you are right on the bandwagon with maintaining the United Nations pro-communist, pro-Mullah foreign policy ideas. And that's, that's exactly what's been taking place. So I want to turn back the pages of history to how did it come about that Iran has become the number one state sponsor of terror when in point of fact in the 1970s, when I was a young man in high school, Iran was our friend. The Shah of Iran believed in America. The Shah of Iran felt like America was his friend and he would send foreign exchange students over to America. He also he also furthered Iran's economy. At one time in the 1940s, the, the average Iranian was making about $160 a year. Under the Shah, which means the king of Iran, under the king of Iran, the Shah of Iran, that came up to the annual salary of a person in Iran was over $2,000 a year. That's not much, but it was an improvement. He also donated 50,000 crown acres. No, I'm sorry, over 500 crown acres he donated to the farmers to help them and to modernize Iran. There was much modernization going on. He was also friends with Israel. You might think about how that happened, how it turned so dramatically. How did it happen? Well, we got a Democratic president in place, a one-worlder, Jimmy Carter, who was a, who was a part of the Trilateral Commission, part of the Council on Foreign Relations, all about world government, and he absolutely betrayed the Shah of Iran, and America betrayed Iran. We gave it to the mullahs. That's what happened. And now, just as Mel Gibson pointed out in the first line of his movie, The Patriot, he says, I've always thought my sins were going to come back to visit me. That's exactly what's been taking place. And all that Americans can see was, Jimmy Carter comes from the Baptist church. He must be a good guy. No. <laughs> no, we're, too, we're thinking too thinly. We're not looking behind the curtain and see what's actually ha happening. We'll come back more about the Shah and how America betrayed the Shah after this. One way you can meet the Shah is to read the book, which I did, by Hussein Nahavandi, who was the prime minister 
underneath Pahlavi, who was the Shah of Iran, Muhammad Riza Pahlavi. He was the last king of Iran. It was a constitutional monarchy. And Hussein Nahavandi, who was one of his prime ministers or his closest advisors, I should say, writes a book about it called The Last Shah of Iran. There are also other journalists who have covered it, that is, such as Hilary Duvalier, a French journalist. James Perloff in America has done much the material, puts this material together. So you can read about this, and those are some of the places you can go. You can still buy Navahandi's book. And he tells all about how America betrayed the Shah and helped give Iran to the hardliner Islamic State. So the Shah reigned from 1941 to 1979. There was much progress under the Shah's rule. Islam, of course, has no rights, but the Shah expanded rights. As a matter of fact, he built roads, canals. He had electrical grid put up. He westernized the, the country of Iran. And that, of course, is anathema to fundamentalist Islamists. And so that's exactly what he did. So that was anathema to them. And it was also anathema to another country. And that was the communists in, at that time, the Soviet Union, just north of Iran. So because he was westernizing, the Soviets didn't like it. Neither did the Muslims. They didn't like it, the hardliners. Even though the Shah continued to expand, he sent foreign exchange students to America. He donated 500,000 crown acres, as I mentioned, to farmers. He expanded women's rights. That's something you don't see in Muslim countries. So even though he was a moderate Muslim, this is how the Shah ruled. The average earning, as I pointed out, was $160 per year when he came to power in the 1940s. And when he left, it was $2,500 a year. He was pro-Western, anti-communist. He was friends with America. And that's where he made his mistake, being pro-Western, anti-communist, because our foreign policy establishment, just as we have right now in the Biden administration, has been pro-communist, except for a few Republicans, such as President Reagan and Donald Trump. But it has been completely pro-communist all the way because it's funneled right through the United Nations. So let's talk about how the Shah was betrayed. The Shah be was betrayed, became a target of a betrayal, a campaign by the United States and the British forces to oust him. But behind the scenes, here's what was basically taking place. Hussein Nahavandi, one of the Shah's ministers, as I mentioned, closest advisor said this, said this in the book. We know now that the idea of deposing the Shah was broached continually from the mid-70s on in the National Security Council in Washington, D.C. by Henry Kissinger, whom the Shah thought was a firm friend. Now, you can do the study on Kissinger and look at his rap sheet, but he virtually epitomized the American establishment before acting as Secretary of State under the Republican Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He had been a chief foreign affairs advisor to Nelson Rockefeller, whom he called in his book, The Single Most Influential Person in My Life. Jimmy Carter defeated Ford, as you know, in the 1976 presidential election. But as Nahavandi points out, and as people who are observers of what's going on in a foreign policy establishment, 
There is not much of a change between the Democratic administration to Republican administration. Basically, we just follow the same track. As I said, there are some exceptions. Ronald Reagan. Now you know why the left absolutely hated Ronald and still hates Ronald Reagan and why the left absolutely goes berserk at the Donald Trump name. And they say, well, and so many people just caught up in all of it. They say, well, I'll never vote for Donald Trump even though I'm a Republican. That's because they've been brainwashed by the mainstream media, the foreign policy makers of America. And this has been going on since the time of Woodrow Wilson. So as a matter of fact, every presidential administration since Franklin Roosevelt has been dominated by members of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the most visible manifestation of this pro-world government policy makers that dictate the foreign policy of the United States. And Jimmy Carter was no exception. So here's how Nahavandi writes of it. And then I'm going to quote from Helier du Berrier, the columnist from France. Here's Nahavandi. The alternation of parties does not change the diplomatic orientation of the United States that much. The process of toppling the Shah had been envisioned and initiated in 1974 under a certain Republican administration. That would be, of course, Richard Nixon. Numerous published documents and studies bear witness to this fact. He said, you go look it up yourself. Even if it was not until the beginning of the Carter administration that that decision was made to take concerted action by evoking problems related to human rights. This is why I remember when Jimmy Carter came to the presidential, uh, president's office in the 1970s, 1976, and he talked about human rights and the conservatives rolled their eyes because they knew that the human rights campaign was actually a covert operation to undercut nations in the uh, foreign nations and to bring in and to bring in communist favoring governments all around the world. For example, here's another one. How about South Africa? The human rights campaign, that wasn't in Jimmy Carter's time, that was later, but the human rights campaign against South Africa, the government, because of apartheid, may have been detrimental, may have been, may have been not favoring what really human rights ought to be about. That may be true. But what happened? We gave, we helped give it over to pro-communist people, such as the Nelson Mandela's and the African National Congress, and now they are running the country. Was that an accident? No, it was not. So Nahavandi tells us this. Numerous published document studies bear witness to that fact, and all of it related to the human rights campaign. Here's Duberrier's comments. When the situation was deemed ripe, U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan, the man that was reputed to have toppled the pro-American government of General Nosavan in Laos was sent to urge the Shah to get out because now the hardline Muslims are stirring it up with pro-communist cells in Iran and they're stirring it up against the Shah. So which side do you suppose that American government takes? Well, we took the hardline Muslim side. That's who we took. We didn't take the Shah's side. We didn't for... Now, in front of the cameras, in front of the cameras, that's how Jimmy Carter would paint it. 
Well, we're going to be siding with the Shah. We'll act like we're the Shah's friend. But behind the scenes, they sent U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan to Iran to urge the Shah to get out of the country and everything will settle down. What they intended, of course, was to turn it over to the mullahs. Not only that, but in December, the United States appointed a man by the name of George Ball, who is supposedly an instant authority on Iran. He was sent to follow up to the Shah with the same message, get out. Now Sullivan, by the way, he was council and foreign relations member, this one world government people, a career diplomat, no Middle East experience, became ambassador to Iran in 1977. And here's what the Shah himself, we allowed him, are we going to allow him to speak? Yeah, I think so. He says this in 1977, and listen to his own testimony. Whenever I met Sullivan and asked him to confirm the official statements which were being made in front of the cameras of American support by Jimmy Carter, who was behind the scenes doing all he could to cut the throat of Iran, Sullivan promised he would, but a day or two later he would return. He would gravely shake his head and say he received no instructions and therefore cannot comment. His answer was always the same. I received no instructions. This rote answer had been given to me in early September 1978, and I would continue to hear the same answer until the day that I left the country. So the other key player that Dubier named was George Ball. He's the quintessential establishment man, council on the formulations, Bilderberger, banker with Lehman Brothers, Kuhn and Loeb. And the Shah commented, when I was, what was I to make, for example, of the administration's, he's talking about Carter, sudden decision to call former Undersecretary of State George Ball to the White House and put him as an advisor to Iran. I knew that George Ball was no friend of the United of, of Iran. Nahavandi, the minister closest advisor to the Shah, says George Ball, the guru of American diplomacy and premonento of certain think tanks and pressure groups, once paid a long visit to Tehran. That's the capital, of course, of Iran. Interestingly, the National Broadcasting Authority placed an office at his disposal. Once installed there, he hosted all the best-known dissidents of the country and gave them encouragement. And after he returned to Washington, he made public statements hostile and insulting to the sovereign, that is, the Shah. Senator Ted Kennedy, who can always be counted on to side with any pro-communist movement in the world, in the 1981 interview, here's how Nahavandi remembers that interview. Let's not forget the venom with which Teddy Kennedy ranted against the Shah, nor that on December 7, 1977, the Kennedy family financed a so-called Committee for the Defense of Liberties of, and Rights of Man in Tehran, which was nothing but a headquarters for revolution. We'll come back to Kennedy in just a few moments. The Shah says, and everybody who lived in that time knows, that the United States media said that the Shah was a despot, a, an oppressor, a tyrant. Kennedy denounced the Shah as running one of the most violent regimes in the history of mankind. Same song, second verse. We heard that regarding Vietnam. We heard that regarding Korea. 
when we helped give away North Korea, we hope that we heard that the same thing, same same song, same chorus is going to be played when it comes to South Africa. Same thing when we hear about Cuba. All that's going to be the same thing, and that's the establishment line. Kennedy just jumps on the bandwagon. Now, when we come back in just a moment, we'll talk about the center of the campaign, which is Tuda, and you can find Tuda, T-U-D-E-H, right now on the Internet. That's the Communist Party in Iran, Soviet-inspired, and how they came to play against the Shah back in just a moment. You know, I have an uncle who had served in the, in the military, in the Air Force as a colonel, and he had been put in Iran in a, in a foreign office for the United States in Tehran in the 1970s. And he tells the story about leaving, having to be escorted very quickly out of Tehran while the mullahs that had taken over under Ayatollah Khomeini began to shoot at a, on, at a wall. All of the people that supported the Shah, all of the top officers of the military, and he, had, and he was barely getting out. How did all that happen? Well, the center of the campaign during Jimmy Carter's period was today, if that's how you pronounce it, T-U-D-E-H. That's the Communist Party in Iran. It was a Soviet-inspired organization, communist-inspired in, in Tehran and in all throughout Iran. The Shah had a personal bodyguard called Savak, S-A-V-A-K. It had 4,000 employees in 1978. So the Muslim fundamentalists, aligned with today, voted, and uh, not voted, but they wanted to get rid of the Shah, and with American assistance, that's exactly what they did. America wanted to get rid of the Shah, and we can talk about why that's the case, but you can read about it, many different sources as we've talked about. One of the things that took place was at the center of this campaign, we've talked about the two-day, there was a Rex Cinema at the Abaddon. There was a fire at that Rex Cinema. Many people were killed, and then there was Savak involved in it. There was a big protest and people getting violent, and many people were shot and killed. Even though many of the forensics that showed that the bullets that had been fired were fired from non-government-issued guns, that is, from communist insurgents, they blamed it on Savak which was the Shah's personal bodyguard and per personal force. So there was a big campaign against the Shah. Not only that, but just to show you how this campaign works, the Shah visited the United States. And the mainstream media turned upside down what actually happened in America. The Shah, for example, visited Williamsburg, Virginia. When he visited Williamsburg, there were 4,000 supporters of the Shah. He was westernizing the country. He was showing freedom. He was giving women rights. And so 4,000 people showed up at Williamsburg to cheer him on. At the same time, there was a communist block of 400 people that protested the Shah, communist-inspired, and they talked about him being a murderer and so forth. Do you know when the mainstream media reported it, they turned the numbers around and they said there were 4,000 people in America who protested Shah coming here because he's a murderer, siding with the Ted Kennedys and the Jimmy Carters of the world talking about how brutal the Shah is. And there were 4,000 
people who are protesting him, and he only had 400 supporters. He turned it around. They turned it around. The mainstream media, along with Congress, turned it around. They lied to the American people. That was to generate this animosity in America. That's how the campaign began and continued in America and also in Iran. And this was all orchestrated by the foreign policy establishment, the Council on Foreign Relations in America, headquartered in America. Not only so, but the Shah had been sending over thousands of students in the foreign exchange program. What the Shah did not know in the 1970s that there were so many pro-communist forces in the universities. Do you see that now? Look what's happening in the universities. The pro-Palestinians are marching, even though the Palestinians will go into Israel and brutally murder men, women, and children, non-combatants, beheading babies. And yet pro-Palestinian people coming out of the universities are marching in favor of that. How did that happen? Well, because our universities have been taken over. That's why people wake up. This has been going on for a long time. And that's exactly what was taking place in the American university. The Shah didn't know that. He sent so many people from Iran into the universities of America, and they were being brainwashed favorable to Marxism. That was favoring the two-day party in Iran. At the same time, do you know who was already hand-selected by the American establishment? And I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize this. The American establishment selected a man to take the Shah's place once he would get out as to our requests. And do you know who that was? His name was Ruholi or Ruhollah Khomeini. He became the Ayatollah. That's right. Internationalist forces rallied around the figure they chose, Ruhollah Khomeini, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, the United Nation peoples, these all, Jimmy Carter, they supported Khomeini. They wanted him in there. So because the Khomeini began denouncing the Shah's reforms in the 1960s, he was adamant. He's a hardline Muslim. He was denouncing the women's rights, the land reform for Muslim clerics. They were giving land back. He didn't like any of that. So his incendiary remarks contributed to the violence that was taking place in Iran because the communists, the Tudor Party, Soviet-sponsored in Iran, along with the mullahs, Ayatollah Khomeini, you would think that America would be against that, but no, those are the ones that American foreign policy establishment supported. The Henry Kissinger of the, of the world, treasonous as it is, they supported the Rahul, his name was Rahola Khomeini. Here's something else. Khomeini had a shadowy past. In the 1960s, there, were, there was rioting in Iran, and it linked him to being financed by the Eastern Bloc Intelligence Services. He was in the circle of the cleric Kakani, and his name is Obel Gassam, who had ties to East German intelligence. That was a communist-inspired group. Furthermore, in 1960, Colonel Golanowski, second in command of the Soviet counterintelligence in Poland, defected to the West, and his debriefings exposed 
communist agents that was honoring Khomeini, and they were in turn being honored and supported by the U.S. House of Representatives. That's the resolutions that were passed by the U.S. House of Representatives. One report was declassified in 2000. It revealed this. This is from the U.S. House of Representatives Declassified Report 2000. Get this information. Ayatollah Khomeini was one of Moscow's five sources of intelligence at the heart of the Shiite hierarchy. In other words, Khomeini was a part of the conspiracy against the Shah, and he was supported by the United States Foreign Policy Establishment. French journalist Dominique Lorenz, you can look this one up also, reported that the Americans, having picked Khomeini to overthrow the Shah. Whose side are we taking here? We're taking the hardline Muslims, Khomeini, Rahullah Khomeini's side, who was sponsored by the Soviet Tude Party in the Soviet Union, who was sponsored also by the Eastern German communist people in Berlin. Khomeini was sponsored by these people, and we helped sponsor him as well. Now, that's hard to believe, but that's exactly what happened. So French journalist Dominique Lorenz reported, the Americans having picked Khomeini to overthrow the Shah had to get him out of Iraq, clothe him with respectability, and set him up in Paris. How are we going to convince the stupid American people, is how they would put it, that Khomeini's just a nice guy, and he ought to replace the Shah because, as Ted Kennedy said, the Shah has the most brutal regime in the history of mankind. So how are we going to do that? So they dressed Khomeini as a nice guy. They put him. They gave him a lot of a, a series of events. In they took him to France in Paris, and the leadership in France, of course, siding with the same thing. Khomeini in 1971, leaving Iraq. He had been in Iraq since 1965. He had been expelled, by the way, from Iran. Now he's permitted to reside, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but a chateau in France called Nouflet de Chateau. And two French police squads, along with Algerians, Palestinians, protected Ruhollah Khomeini. Now Havandi writes this, and you're going you're gonna to be bowled over when you get this information. Around the small villa occupied by Khomeini in Paris, France, the agents of many of the world's secret services were gathered as thickly as autumn leaves. The CIA, MI6, KGB, that would be United States Secret Service, protecting him, MI6, KGB from Soviet Union, and the S-D-E-C-E were all there. CIA had even rented the house next door. According to the most published witness statements, the East Germans were in charge of most of the radio transmissions. And on at least one occasion, 8,000 cassettes of the Ayatollah speeches were sent out directly to Tehran by what was called the diplomatic bag. Foreign affairs analyst Duberrier reports this, French services quickly verified that Libya, Iraq, and Russia provided the money. America was providing the support and protective, protective custody. And young Iranians, members of today Communist Party, made up of Khomeini's, they made up Khomeini's secretariat in France. So Tude was helping him. 
and working in cooperation with French Communist Party, they provided couriers to pass his orders and tapes into Iran. And who was part of this? America was part of this. This is exactly what happened. Matter of fact, Khomeini gave 132 interviews in 112, 112 days. He received easy questions from the media because the media has always been pro-communist in the United States. This is the 1970s. And so they gave him these softball questions, just like we hear the conservatives complaining about now that are given to Joe Biden. Nahavandi affirms this within Iran. The voice of America, the voice of Israel, and especially BBC, virtually became the voice of the revolution. The voice of America. Interesting. We gave him his voice. We gave him protective custody. The story goes on. It's an ugly thing. Let's talk about ending the Shah's rule for just a moment. We'll come back in just a moment to finish the story. But Carter was pressing the Shah to liberalize. The Shah tried to liberalize. He released prisoners, but mayhem followed. And then they sent in, the United States sent in a four-star general by the name of Robert Heiser, I guess is how you pronounce his name, H-U-Y-S-E-R, deputy commander of the United States forces in Europe. And he was sent in to pressure Iran's generals into giving up without a fight. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Well, the story of how America betrayed the Shah has a very sad ending. Let's see if we can get to that ending and wrap it up here. Remember, Carter was pressing the Shah to liberalize. The Shah tried to do that. Now, Carter sends a four-star Air Force general by the name of Robert Heiser, deputy commander of U.S. forces to Europe, and he sent him into Iran to pressure Iran's generals into giving up without a fight. What? That's amazing. Give up. Because that's what the whole policy establishment, foreign policy establishment of the Carter administration was all about. So here is a statement from Duberrier. Heiser directly threatened the military with a break in diplomatic relations and a cutoff of arms if they moved to support the monarch that would be the Shah. I tell you what, you talk about treason. This is where it is. Heiser paid the Shah a complimentary visit one time. But he had several meetings with, you guessed it, the revolutionary leaders. That was on behalf of the Carter administration. He pressed Shaw to get out, leave the country. And the pressure was so immense because through the diplomatic individuals such as the William Sullivan, as we mentioned earlier, now General Heiser, the pressure was mounting. And despite the pleadings of Iranians to stay, the Shah finally left. Now, America promised that the Shah could come here. That's why the Shah left. But when the Shah left, now America said, if you think that this is not treason, you think about this. It was told to the Shah from the Carter administration, you cannot come to the United States territory. How do you like that? A man who had been friend of the United States befriended us, a man whom he thought was America was his best friend, and he wanted to liberalize against the hardliners. And all the while, we cut his throat. And we said, you can't even come to our country. You can read about this in a paper by Richard Dreyfus, by the way, called Hostages to Khomeini in 1980. You can remember how that happened. So what happened? 
Well, now Khomeini, Ruhollah Khomeini, comes to Iran and he is welcomed by the hardline Muslim community and the thousands of people that gather because the Shah, the king, has been kicked out. And do you know who are part of the welcoming party to the Shah, or rather to the Khomeini, who now becomes the Ayatollah? That's right, the United States diplomats. United States diplomats helped welcome him in February 1, 1979. And now Ayatollah says they wanted the Shah to be brought back to Iran in a cage. And they wanted to torture him and punish him for being friends with the United States. All the while, the United States had taken him down. The Ayatollah slaughtered thousands and thousands of top military officials, the Shah's forces, the Savak, they slaughtered them. General Heiser had said, don't resist the revolution. And do you know the Ted Kennedys of the world and the Jimmy Carters who are talking about human rights and Ted Kennedys who had talked about the Shah was the most brutal dictator that history had ever known. Do you know how many times he spoke out now? Zero. They don't talk about it at all. It doesn't matter how brutal the Ayatollah Khomeini is. Now Ted Kennedy shuts mouth and Jimmy Carter played shut mouth also. That's what you get when you listen to the foreign policy establishment on human rights, isn't it? They don't know what human rights are. They're using it as a cover to give nations to the communists. The tail end of the story is a sad one. The Shah was welcomed eventually by the president of Mexico at that time was Lopez Portillo. But there was a secret that the Shah had at the time, and the Shah had cancer. And David Rockefeller brought the Shah to, the New, York, to New York City to a hospital to get his care for cancer. And when that occurred, when America brought the Shah into the United States finally under David Rockefeller, who's one of the establishment men, what did Iran do? They were so angry. They took 52 hostages, and now you know the rest of the story. They took our hostages and paraded them in front of the cameras of the world and made Jimmy Carter look stupid. And so now, at the embassy in Tehran, they took those hostages out, and now you know what's happened there. But now also the pressure became on the international pressure from the United States foreign policy makers in the Democratic Party and Republican Party, too, they put pressure on Mexico to reverse its welcome. Mexico said, yeah, you can't come back here, Shaw. So Panama welcomed the Shah of Iran to come to Panama, but they put him under house arrest. But there was a scheme that was, and I don't know who was all behind it, but you can probably guess the players at this point, to send the Shah back to Iran because that's what the Ayatollah Khomeini wanted. Bring the Shah back and the Muslims eat their own. He wanted to parade the Shah in a cage, torture him, and, and behead him in front of the people. They even erected a special cage for the Shah. There was a man in Egypt, the prime minister named Anwar Sadat. He learned of the betrayal that America was a party to. He sent a jet secretly to Panama, and they escorted the Shah and the Empress to get out of Egypt, or get out of, get out of Panama and bring him to Egypt, and so that's what they did. 
Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the man who wanted to modernize Iran, befriended the United States, thought that we were his friend, died July 27, 1980. But the Muslim clerics and the Muslim hardliners were so angry at Anwar Sadat that we have now a Muslim assassinating, the extremists assassinating Anwar Sadat in Egypt, also in Cairo. And now you know what happened. Now you know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. So now let's look at what's happened in America and what we hear on the news all the time about the number one state sponsor of terror is Iran. I ask the question, whose fault is that? We have been listening to the siren songs of pro-communist, pro-Muslim hardliners ourselves in a foreign policy establishment, whether it be a Republican or Democrat, and we have betrayed one country after another. That's why I am concerned that just as was stated in the first line of the movie, The Patriot, we have exactly the same thing coming back to America, and that is I'm afraid that the sins of our past are going to come back and haunt us. That's what's been happening in America. That's what's been happening around the world. That's why every country that we seem to touch becomes communist. Have you noticed that? Iran, North Korea, Cuba, Nicaragua, South Africa, Laos, Vietnam, everything goes. What happens? We've touched it. becomes communist. China, that's what happened there. Same thing. So, no, I don't listen to the Nikki Haley's of the world who are part of the foreign policy of establishment because they're the ones who are causing the troubles in the world. I'm not an isolationist, but I'm a non-interventionist and say we need to quit supporting the forces of evil around the world. Now, when I come back, I want to talk about one biblical passage that shows us exactly the same thing was taking place in Bible times. That will be Psalms 44. And it's called one, what I call one nation under siege. That's what we are, a nation under siege. We'll be back in just a moment. You know, you might think about the story that we've told today. And, and through one aspect of it, I would like to think about what I call one nation under siege. One nation under siege is actually the title that is given by the Holman Bible Commentary to Psalm 44. But it depicts the nation of Israel under siege. And the, the puzzling thing about it is at the first of the psalm, which takes us Psalm 44, 1 through 8, we have the great blessings that God has established Israel. He made them a nation among the peoples of the earth in the Old Testament period. And a lot of people stop right there in the psalm and say, boy, this is great because looking at the first section, it's a statement of praise and it's a statement of blessing God for what great things he has done for Israel. But that misses the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm actually brings to us to verses 9 through 22, which tells us that basically what happened? What happened? And that's exactly where America is. We can look at verses 1 through 8 and think that's exactly how America has established as a Christian nation. Blessings of God. I believe the blessings of God on America. But now we're one nation, America, a nation under siege. And the point of the Psalm 44 is that what happened to us? As a matter of fact, 
David writes a statement in verses 11 and 12 saying, You've scattered us among the nations of the world. We're not even a peoples anymore. Now, it declines in the psalm to assume that all of this is the people's fault, but that's exactly what I think is going on regarding America. So you might divide the psalm up this way, a prosperous past, verses 1 to 8. Remember, Joshua gave them all the land that he promised to give them, Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. God gave them victory, verses 4 through 8, but, well, there's a painful present. That's verses 9 through 22. And it seemed that God had turned against them. And that is that they were scattered among all the nations of the earth. That's scattered. And God made them a scorn and a derision, verses 13 through 16. David even says, my face is covered with shame, verse 15. But the point of the psalm at the very end of it is not simply to leave it there, but it is to say that there's a positive prospect. That is, there's one hope for America. And that hope for America is the same as was the hope for Israel in the Old Testament. And the lesson is no matter how threatening a national tragedy may appear to be, no matter how threatening it may be that President Biden is now giving away all of the monies that he can possibly, as Obama did, to the number one state sponsor of terror, and that would be Iran. But you've seen the backstory of that. Even though that looks like very threatening, and what's happening in the Middle East as as we're recording today, they're meeting in Eastern nations, all of these hardline Muslim countries talking about how they're going to get rid of Israel. And America is, of course, the big beast that they need to get rid of as well. They've always been on this track. They have a goal. But there's a positive prospect ahead. That's verses 23 through 26 of the psalm. And that is, no matter how threatening a national tragedy may appear, there's always hope for the future if, if we put our trust in God. Because political and cultural upheavals are going to take place in America, and it will take place until we have a people that will turn back to God. That's Psalms 44. We are, America is, a one nation under siege, and we can relieve that siege by turning back to God and reflecting upon biblical principle and elect the right people for office as well. That's the message for us today. 